If I told you that I sleep each night on four pillows, I would be lying. But let's imagine that I was telling the truth. I sleep on four pillows each night because otherwise I tend to wake up with cough and shortness of breath. But with my four pillows, I'm fine. I've also noticed that my ankles are swollen. And in fact, if I press hard and let go, the indentation remains for a while. And I've also been feeling a bit tired, actually quite tired recently. And when I went to the doctor and he started poking around in my abdomen, he also noticed my liver was a little bit enlarged. Do you understand what's going on? You might know all the words I've just used, and you might imagine all those symptoms. But unless you've got some medical background, you probably don't realize that I'm in cardiac failure. And even if someone told you, you probably really wouldn't understand the significance of that and what needs to be done about it. Sometimes we can all know the facts without understanding the meaning, without really getting the picture. And we see that in our passage this morning. Our passage this morning is part of the travel narrative in Luke's Gospel. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, and many things have happened along the way, which the Holy Spirit, through Luke, uses to teach us. Sometimes Jesus has given direct teaching. Other times we've seen individuals come to Jesus and how they approach Him has become a model for us. Uh, last week we saw how we need to come to God as unworthy sinners who need His mercy rather than as moral people who think we're good enough for Him and, and certainly better than others. And as we come to God like little children who have nothing to offer rather than like rich rulers who think we're good and we've got everything to give. Well, this morning we will hear two sets of facts. And I pray that God will enable us to not only understand their meaning, but to, but to grasp their significance and enable us to respond appropriately in the way we, we think and we feel and we act. There are two parts of the passage that we are reading this morning and corresponding to those two sets of facts. The first part, from verse 31 to 34, uh, Jesus is speaking to his 12 apostles. This is private teaching. And here he tells them for the third time why they are going to Jerusalem. See, he says in verse 31, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. What's going to happen in Jerusalem is in fulfillment of prophecy. And what would that be? Verse 32, For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus predicts his rejection, his humiliation, his torture, his suffering, his death. And he also predicts his resurrection. But look at how what he says affects the 12 apostles. Verse 34. But they understood none of these things this saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. Now, it's not they didn't understand the words. They knew what Gentiles meant. They knew what flogging meant. They knew what kill meant. They know what rise meant. They, they know the words he's saying, enough to be able to record them later, but they still didn't get it. Didn't understand what he really meant. 
No insight to what really will be happening, what's necessary, how it fits in with God's big promises in the Old Testament, what, what it meant for Jesus, what it, what it would mean for them, how they ought to respond. Jesus talking about dying and rising, they, they, they know it, but they, they can't grasp it. Didn't fit with their prior knowledge and preconceived ideas, so it just didn't make sense. And there are still people, and there are probably people in this room, who know these facts. You can tell me that Jesus Christ died on the cross one Friday in about 33 AD, and that he rose again on the following Sunday morning. You know these are verifiable historical events. You had no problem with them happening. But you don't see what difference that makes in your life in 21st century Kuala Lumpur. They're just events out there. They haven't profoundly revolutionized the way you think and feel about God, about others, even about yourself. You don't see how they connect with the big picture of God's plans and purposes for the whole world. They have not become the center of your life, and you have no idea why they ought to be. So actually, you don't understand either. It's hidden from you. You do not grasp what is said. Well, if that's you or, or someone you love, then look what happens next. That, that the second set of facts. Jesus, verse 35, draws near to Jericho. We're not sure if this is the new Jericho or the old Jericho. They were very close to each other. Uh, but you see Jericho. Um, let me see if I can borrow... Hang on. This, okay. Those of you who do Bible overview with me will know about this, okay? Right? There's, there's Jerusalem, right? And there is Jericho, right? So Jericho is here. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's come down from up. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And he stops in Jericho. Now, you see from here, if you can see this side, the the Google Maps topographical kind of thing. You see Jericho is low in the Jordan Valley. In fact, it's below sea level. And here is Jerusalem up on the hill, right? I think it's about 30 kilometers. Let me just check my notes. I think it's about 30 kilometers away. Yep. But Jerusalem is about 1,000 uh, meters higher, right? Which is why it says he was going up to Jerusalem. Uh, so Jesus comes to Jericho. And there is this blind man uh, sitting by the roadside begging. And this blind man hears this crowd and, and asks what's going on. Uh, and the people tell him in verse 37, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now Nazareth is a little town way up north where Jesus grew up and, and where he lived. Right? So people call him Jesus of Nazareth. That just identifies him as the Jesus that comes from Nazareth. The blind man has obviously heard of this Jesus of Nazareth before. Because when he hears that Jesus is around, he starts calling out to Jesus. And he doesn't just call him Jesus of Nazareth. What does he call him in verse 38? Jesus, son of David. Jesus, son of David. Now that's significant, isn't it? Because David, who lived 1,000 years before Christ, he was the great king of Israel. And God had promised David that he would establish a dynasty for him that would last forever. 
And so the rightful heir to the throne, the rightful king of Israel, really should be a descendant of David. At the time of Jesus, well, the Romans controlled the country, and Herod, the puppet king whom the Romans had appointed, had no connection with the Davidic line. And so when the blind man calls out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, he's making a big statement. Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. He's that promised Messiah that that God has promised that Israel's been waiting for. And he doesn't just identify Jesus as the king. It's not just a, a political statement. Because, well, actually, it's... It's a personal one. He doesn't just say, Jesus, son of David, take up your throne and reign. What does he say? Verse 38 again. Son of David, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. This man is blind. He cannot see, so he cannot work. And he has to beg to stay alive. He's used to begging. And that's the posture he takes before Jesus. He comes begging. He acknowledges that Jesus is the king. He's not afraid to say it, even shout it. What has he got to lose, huh? And then he begs Jesus for mercy. And have mercy on him. Now, I'm guessing that people around would have been a little bit uncomfortable Because what if Herod's special branch agents were there and they hear him calling someone else this rightful king? Maybe that's why the people in front, in verse 39, rebuke him and tell him to be quiet. That's not going to stop him. It makes him cry out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus is the rightful king. He is the Messiah. He is the descendant of David that God's been promising. This man knows it. Not only does he know it, he knows that Jesus can help him. And so he begs him again, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears his cry. He stops. He commands that the man be brought to him. And so the man comes to Jesus. And Jesus asks him the question, What do you want me to do for you? In verse 40. You've cried out to me for mercy, but what what exactly do you need? What do you desire? Oh, the man doesn't ask for money, though he needs it. He's a beggar. What he asks for, at the end of verse 41, Lord, let me recover my sight. Now, you know, that was an unprecedented request. Never in the Old Testament do we see the example of a blind man receiving their sight, his sight. But in our Old Testament reading today, we did see a picture of what would happen when God comes to save and rule his people. Remember what it said? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That is what this blind man is asking for. He wanted to experience the thing that would happen when God came 
to save and rule his people. And he believed that Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, could do that for him. And what does Jesus say? Verse 42, recover your sight. In the Greek, it's just one word. See again, or, or see. And just like God spoke in creation and it was done, Jesus speaks the command and it will happen. But this time he also makes a comment about it. For unlike his creation, in creation, his speaking with the command is, is linked with faith. And so he adds, your faith has made you well. And again, that, that, that phrase translated, has made you well, is actually just one word. Your faith has healed you. Or another way to translate it, your faith has saved you. And right away, the Bible says in verse 43, he recovered his sight. His eyes are opened. He can see. And how does he respond to this miracle, verse 43? He follows Jesus. He becomes a disciple of Jesus. He comes under the leadership of Jesus. He becomes one of Jesus' people. And as he does that, he glorifies God, giving thanks to him for what he has done through his Messiah. When the blind man gained his sight, he glorified God. And all the people, verse 43, when they saw it, gave praise to God for what he had done. So, we've now seen two sets of facts. But have we understood their meaning? Why does the Holy Spirit lead Luke to record this story right here? And what's he telling you and telling me through it? Oh, we've already seen two things about Jesus in the healing of this blind man. We've seen he's the son of David, the promised king. And we've seen that he's doing what the Old Testament said God would do when he came to save and rule his people. Both of us are correct. But there's more here to grasp. For you see, the healing miracles of Jesus are indeed in themselves pictures that point to a bigger healing. Think again about our Old Testament reading in Isaiah 35. Isaiah was written to sinful Israel 600 years before this. Isaiah had warned them that because of their sin, God was going to send them into exile, away from the land that he'd given them. Just like humankind was sent into exile from the Garden of Eden and placed under curse when, when we sinned. But in Isaiah 35, God spoke of the time when he would reverse the exile and the curse. And the picture language there was, was extravagant. The desert blooms with singing, the glory of God is seen. And then we get this verse 4. Be strong, fear not, behold your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. God was going to come and save his people. And then remember what happens when God comes. The eyes of the blind are open, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man leaps like a deer, the tongues of the mute sing for joy. That's what it's, it's, it's reversal of curse when God comes to save his people. Reversal of curse. Israel had been under curse, not blessing because of their sin, but actually that was a picture of the bigger curse that the whole world is under because of sin. 
for all the sickness and pain and suffering and injustice and all the problems of this world. It's actually because we are, we are under the curse of sin. All of us have sinned. All of us have failed to treat God properly. And while there's no one-to-one correlation between how much one sins and one suffers, suffering and all these, it's in the world because sin is in the world, because the curse is here. But Isaiah says, when God comes to save his people, he will remove the curse. When he finally brings in the kingdom in all its fullness, it'll be like Eden again. God's people being God's place under his blessing and rule, perfectly restored. God will come and save them and rule them. And you see, in this miracle, we are getting a little glimpse of what Isaiah says will happen when God comes to save his people. And while much of Isaiah 35 is in picture language, the picture bursts into reality in the miracles of Jesus. And in today's miracle, we see the eyes of the blind are actually open. God has come. The kingdom has come. It's been inaugurated. Jesus, the son of David, is the king. Yet, we also know that there is another sense in which the kingdom is still to come. We are still waiting for the kingdom to come in all its fullness. That's why we still pray, your kingdom come, isn't it? The kingdom has been inaugurated, but we are waiting for the kingdom to be consummated. The kingdom is now, but it's also not yet. Still waiting for the kingship of Jesus to be seen by all. Still waiting for the curse on creation to be lifted. And while we wait, we still suffer from all kinds of pain and disability and disease. The world is still under the curse of sin. But these miracles of Jesus, like the one today, it's a foretaste of that final restoration, a picture that promises what is to come. They point us to the day when Jesus will return and do this for everyone who believes in him. And on that day, the blind will see, the lame will walk, the deaf will hear, the mute will speak, and the dead will rise. And our healing will be complete. And we and all creation will be what we are created to be. Because God, who spoke creation by his word, will fix it all up again by his word as he did with this blind man. And at the end of the age, in the new creation, we who belong to Jesus, who have been forgiven by him, will be free from sin altogether. God's people, in God's place, under his blessing and rule, where there is no more death, no more mourning, no more sickness, no more disability. That is the ultimate salvation. That is the ultimate healing that Jesus came to bring. Well, remember how I mentioned the word for healed is the same word as for saved? Well, the healing of this blind man is that picture of that bigger salvation. That's the significance of this on a, on a cosmic level. But what about on a personal level? What does it mean for for you and for me? Well, I take it that you and I want to be part of that greater salvation, that that we don't want to be under God's curse forever. We want to enjoy Him instead. And this blind man provides a picture 
of how that can be ours. He was healed or saved, not because of his own efforts, but because he believed in Jesus. He cried out to Jesus in faith. And we too are saved when we do that. We, we cry out to him as king, our king. And we cry out to him to have mercy on us. For we know that just like the blind man could not make himself see, we cannot save ourselves from our sin and its curse. In fact, there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. All we can do is come to the king and cry to him and beg him for mercy. And Jesus the king is able to save us. And how can he do that? How can he remove the curse of sin? How can God justly forgive us and, and bring us to the new creation when, when we deserve his eternal curse for our rebellion against him? Well, remember how our passage opened? That first set of facts. Jesus was going to Jerusalem to fulfill the Old Testament by his suffering, death, and resurrection. And you remember how the apostles couldn't grasp it at the time? It was only later, after the resurrection, that their minds would be opened to understand the Old Testament Scriptures. It was only later, after the resurrection, that Jesus would explain to them and they would come to see that the Christ, the Son of David, must suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. It was only later, after the resurrection, that they would realize the spiritual realities behind these events. Remember how Jesus said back in verse 32, he would be delivered over to the Gentiles. In the Old Testament, when God's people were delivered over to, to the Gentiles or to the nations, it meant they were, they were coming under the judgment of God. And Jesus would suffer terribly and be killed under the judgment of God. For his suffering and death, he would actually, in that, be taking our sins and the punishment that we deserve. God would, would pour his curse upon him, the curse that, we, that, that, that should be ours so that we can be forgiven. He would bear our sin and our judgment on our behalf. And having died for our sin, having paid the penalty in full, having proved that he really was well and truly dead, on the third day, he would rise again. And by his resurrection, God the Father would confirm that Jesus is indeed the son of David, the promised king. The God has come, not only to, to save his people, but to rule them as king. The apostles, they didn't get it until the risen Jesus opened their minds to the scriptures. And, and we too, we needed the Holy Spirit to, to open our hearts and minds to the spiritual realities of, of our desperate need for Jesus and his wonderful saving work on our behalf. People explained it to us as best they could. But in the end, we needed to have our spiritual eyes open so, so that we could see what that blind man already saw. We desperately need Jesus. And like the apostles, we needed to have our eyes open not just to the, the facts of Jesus' death and resurrection, but to, to be able to grasp their significance for us personally in our hearts. And if you are someone who knows that you've been saved, you can be thankful that the Spirit has done that for you.
And that was no less a miracle than the miracle that we read about this morning. But if you are here today, and you don't yet know that you're saved, then let me speak to you. You need Jesus as much as that blind man did. All of us are guilty of sin. All of us feel the effects of the curse. All of us are in danger of being under the curse forever. But if you cry out to Jesus as your king, if you ask him to have mercy on you, then like the blind man, he will save you. He will save you from the eternal curse of sin like he saved this blind man from his blindness and enabled him to see. So cry out to him. And do so personally. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I need saving. I cannot save myself. You can save me. Please do. Have mercy on me. And you know what he'll say to you? Same thing as he says to the blind man. Your faith has saved you. Not because your faith is great in itself, but because your faith is in him. And when Jesus saves you, the only right response is, is that of the blind man. You are to follow him. You are to recognize him not only as king of all, but the personal king of your life. To live as one of his people in his kingdom. Which means that from this time forward, your life revolves around him. His ethics are your ethics. His priorities are your priorities. His people are your people. His God and Father is your God and Father. He is your King. He is your Lord. And you live your life to glorify God for what He has done for you in Him. But it wasn't just the blind man who rejoiced in his salvation. Remember, all the people who saw it gave praise to God. And that becomes a model for us as well, doesn't it? Brothers and sisters, we give praise to God every time we see him save someone. And that is a right and joyful thing to do. God celebrates when a sinner repents, and so should we. So let me give you one suggestion. You want fuel for your praise? Make it your goal to ask one person at church each week to tell you the story of how God saved them no matter how long ago it was or how recent it was. And if you don't know what to say, because sometimes these kind of conversations are a bit hard to start, you can say something like, Andrew suggested in a recent sermon that we should ask each other how we came to trust in Jesus. Do you mind if I ask you? And get ready to hear and listen with a thankful heart. And then you go home and you thank God for saving that brother or sister. You know, if we make a point of trying to do that each week, what a difference that would make in our praise and in our community. And if you get asked to share, then just share your story honestly. Don't matter if you think your story is boring. Most of us have pretty ordinary stories. But even when we hear each other's stories, no matter how ordinary, 
we can thank God because we know that behind each ordinary story is a spiritual miracle of God opening blind eyes to his wonderful work in Christ. And God is glorified as we join our brothers and sisters in praising God for their salvation. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for opening our eyes to Jesus. Thank you that you have enabled us to grasp that his suffering and death is for us and that he is our risen king. Lord, we know that that is, that is your work and we thank you so much for that. We know that we are unworthy and yet you have saved us and we thank you for that. And we pray that you help us to respond rightly, following Jesus, glorifying you for that which you've done. Help us to rejoice in each other's salvation and glorify and praise you for that. And Father, we pray that for any of those here who have not yet grasped the wonder of what you've done through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that you have mercy on us as well. Open our eyes. Enable us to have sight. Enable us to see Jesus, to love him, to trust him, follow him, and glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>